I did report to a, a governing board for, for 12 years as a chancellor before starting to consult. And I am absolutely convinced that how the board works with each other is a single important, critical uh, determiner of how effective they're going to be. This is In the Know with ACCT, the voice of community college leaders. I'm Jacob Bray. This is the second in a series of episodes dedicated to the fundamentals of community college governance. In this series, Jackie King, co-editor of the recently released Trusteeship in Community Colleges, A Guide for Effective Governance, 2nd Edition, interviews chapter authors about how to govern. In this episode, ACCT consultant Dr. Pamela Fisher discusses best practices for governing boards, including building a cohesive team and making time for professional development. She provides advice on how to avoid areas that can derail the board's effectiveness. To purchase Trusteeship in Community Colleges, A Guide for Effective Governance, 2nd Edition, visit the ACCT Bookstore online. I'll include a link in the description. Hello and welcome to this latest installation of our podcast series on Trusteeship in Community Colleges, A Guide for Effective Governance. I'm Jackie King and I am one of the editors of this fantastic volume of advice and wisdom and uh, best practices for governing boards of community colleges. And speaking of advice and wisdom and best practices, I am so pleased to be joined today by uh, someone who brings all of those things in a huge wealth of experience. Uh, Pam Fisher, thank you so much for being with us today. Pam authored not, uh, not just one, but two chapters in the book, uh, the chapter on policymaking and the chapter on best practices for effective governing boards. And I commend both of those chapters to you. We're gonna focus today uh, on the chapter on best practices. So Pam, thank you again for making time in your very busy schedule to talk with us today. Thank you, Jackie, I'm honored to be asked. Um, Pam is uh, consults regularly with boards all around the country and just brings such a huge wealth of experience uh, to this topic. Uh, we're just uh, thrilled to have her with us. So diving right in, you begin your chapter on best practices of effective boards by focusing on teamwork. Can you uh, describe what a board can do to ensure that it functions well as a team? Sure, I, I will attempt to do that. Uh, I'd like to start too, though, by saying that I commend all those folks who volunteer to be on a governing board for a community college. I think the context of how important their role is, is, is cannot be overstated. And sometimes that we forget that, we forget that. And unfortunately, when we get reminded of that, is when that board isn't effective. <laughs> because if they are effective, everything's going along well, nobody thinks anything about it, and they're wonderful, and they're happy with the college and the president and the staff and everybody else. But when things start to go wrong, there almost always is a connection with the board and how effective it is or not. I'm personally convinced, uh, I did report to a, a governing board for, for 12 years as a chancellor before starting to consult. And I am absolutely convinced that how the board works with each other is a single 
important, critical uh, determiner of how effective they're going to be. You bring together five people, seven people, nine people, 11, 15, sometimes it's more, but those are the typical numbers of the sizes of our boards. Usually strong, wise, uh, experienced people, sometimes a little new, but strong in their own right and ready to do something to help that college. But unfortunately, they're also usually ready to do it all by themselves. And the shocking news to them which comes by way of new trustee orientation is, guess what? Thank you for volunteering or for running for office. Congratulations. You have no power by yourself. And that, that is a shock for people. And it's a very hard pill for some to swallow. For others, it's okay, yeah, that's good. I'm glad it's not all on me. But that concept that on a higher ed governing board, an individual person has no authority is the first step toward understanding, oh, then I need to be a part of a team. Okay, that sounds good. Uh, how, how, do I get to, how do I get to be a team? And also sometimes, how do I get the team to do what I want it to do? He <laughs> says, so well, let's back off and let's, let's rethink that a little bit. So becoming a cohesive team takes time. And I like to warn people, don't get impatient, but most importantly, allow time, set aside time, allocate it, make it happen that there is some place where the members of that board and their president or chancellor, because I like to say the team is the board and the CEO, set aside time where you could get to know each other, uh, find out who they are as a person, find out what they care about, find out why they're on the board, what's their purpose, what's their uh, rationale, and then start to talk about what does the college mean to them. And every time I've done that with a group, two things happen. They learn things about each other that they had no idea, even if they'd been on the board with them for 10 years. Well, I didn't know you did that. I didn't know you had that experience. And sometimes those experiences that, and we have ways of encouraging them to share their stories are very personal and very profound uh, and lead almost directly to why they're so committed to the community college. And then that leads to the second outcome, which is no matter how diverse our backgrounds are, we have a shared vision, a shared purpose for being on a board. That's a really important part of becoming a team. And then the second aspect is finding out what does it take to be a good team member if you don't already know, and that's professional development. So professional development for governing boards to me is a huge piece of becoming a cohesive team. Learn what your roles are. Uh, learn what are the accepted processes in your college. <clears throat> and if you don't think those are good processes, ask about them, ask why do we do this? And then have the conversation that comes from that. And we may talk about this more as we go along, but I wanna at least put in a very, very strong uh, recommendation that boards set aside regular time, which I've already mentioned, but specifically in a format that is conducive to this kind of discussion, namely a retreat, or some people call it a workshop. But time where you're not doing the business of the college, you are doing the business of expanding the leadership skills and building the cohesiveness of the board. It is all, I won't say it's impossible, 
but it is extremely to do, difficult to do that in the confines of a regular parliamentary procedure board meeting. It just doesn't work that way. So that brings me full circle back. If you decide it's important, and we hope you will, that you'll set aside a time to make it happen, and then that you'll continue to do that on some sort of regular basis. Great, fantastic, and, and yes, so important, and especially important, I imagine, these days where we're meeting with each other virtually. <laughs> yes, and you know, that raises a good point because I'm the kind of person who really wants to encourage people to get together and talk and be open and share. And one gentleman told me just a couple of days ago in a virtual retreat, you know, I don't like touchy-feely stuff. And I, and I hear that, and I hear that in person retreats as well. And I assure them that's not what we're doing, but we do have to come to know each other better. And when you do it virtually, it is more challenging, but it can work. And we've set aside, we being ACCT, we have a number of articles on the website that deal directly with how to be more successful in that Zoom setting. And um, I have a, a piece that I did that's on the website about what CEOs and their assistants can do to help boards be more comfortable and more successful in the Zoom setting. And, and they're really critical. There's a whole lot of them that you can do, but two I'll mention quickly. One is make sure your board members are, have all they need technologically speaking to be successful. The equipment, the software, the training, practice ahead of time, whatever it is to help them do that. And then the second part is as, as a board, have some sort of rules of engagement for example, have the rule that everybody's picture is going to stay up all the time. After doing this for the past 10 months, one of the things I've found is that it's too easy to turn off the screen or go to the still or the background or whatever and, and claim that you're still there and still listening. The communication drops 75% when that happens. And if a person's technology won't let them on, then that board member also gets marginalized. So there's some rules about what you can do to make it more effective. And I have to say, personally, I've had to learn a lot and I have been pleasantly surprised at how much you can do, especially if your board's relatively small, five, seven, nine, where you can see everybody on the screen and you can see the body language. Um, and I might add, if I could, just another suggestion that I haven't heard too many people talk about. If you're broadcasting your board meetings virtually, I really encourage board chairs and their presidents, when the meeting's over, go back and watch your meeting online yourself. Watch the broadcast and you'll immediately see what's working and what's not. And the biggest, I watch a lot of those meetings and the biggest error I see is the camera is not set up where you can see all the board members easily and where they can see, I'm talking about, excuse me, I should explain, I'm talking about the meetings where the board's meeting in person, but the audience is virtual. And that seems to be a mode that a lot of boards are using. And the board thinks everything's fine because they can see everybody, but, but the audience cannot. And as a facilitator, if you're going to do a virtual retreat or something like that, that's a really big issue. So I've added that to my list. Let's, let's do a dress rehearsal. Let's check it out. Let's see how we, what we can do. So Zoom makes it harder. COVID makes it harder, I should say. 
but we can do it. We're flexible, we're leaders, we can do it. And I've had, let's face it, we have a lot of board members who um, are veterans and have been around a long time, some of whom are superb with technology and some of whom are terrified by it. And at, at the beginning of COVID, some told me, I will not do that. I don't understand it, I will not do it. And what we've had to do is work with them and say, in today's age, you cannot be a successful governing board without mastering the technology. It's, it's become a prerequisite. Absolutely. It's the way we're all living our lives yeah, these days. Right, and, right. Uh, uh, learning it on a governing board will allow you to use it with your family, Absolutely. your business, in all other aspects of your life. So it's, it's a skill well, well worth learning. Definitely so, definitely. I'm going to switch gears, Pam, and uh -huh. another topic that you cover in uh, considerable detail in your chapter is ethics. Mm -hmm. And of course, trustees should avoid egregious ethical violations. But are there subtler questions of ethics that trustees might not immediately recognize? Hmm. I think there definitely are, Jackie. And a way of demonstrating that perhaps is that Almost every accreditation standard says the board should have a code of ethics and most boards do. I have looked at dozens of them and the focus of the majority is avoiding conflict of interest. But those are the egregious ones like you're talking about. And some have gone beyond that and we'll have another four or five areas that you really shouldn't you know, avoid this or etc. And that's great. I, I personally, when I facilitate a board retreat, one of the first things I look at is to see what policy do they have about the roles and responsibilities of a board member and what is their code of ethics if they have one and what do they have in it. What seems to be missing in many are something I have come to call code of conduct. <laughs> In other words, okay, here's these big picture things and we all agree we shouldn't do that. Unfortunately, some of them still do it, but, but we would never disagree on what that you should not have done that. But then there's this whole other set of, of behaviors that are disruptive to a board and hurtful to a college and need to be dealt with. At the top of the list is violating your own policies. And some boards will put that in there. But if you have a policy that says you come to a board meeting prepared, or you come to a board meetings, in board meetings, you're very respectful of each other and of the staff. If you have policies like that, and then you also in your code of ethics say that the board will hold each other accountable it gives you an opportunity to address some of the other things that are more vague or subtle, but you know they're there. And I, I hope I don't sound too negative as I talk about some of these, but a lot of it has to do with the interpersonal skills and the things they will do on a board. Some board members will be purposely disruptive. I mean, you can tag it, but what are they violating? But they're disruptive. They will even go so far and to be successful, they have hijacked the meeting and they've, they've taken it off track and they won't let it go back. They don't honor speaking with one voice. Sometimes they're playing to the audience 
They have political aspirations and they're grandstanding. They're playing to different constituents. Um, some often, I don't want to say often, but of the ones who act out, often they really don't care for the president and they're trying to undermine the president, but they do it subtly. So no one, they think no one can call them on it. It's, it's really, really tough. And of course, <clears throat> if their agenda is something other than helping the college be successful, there are a lot of ways to do it. There are a lot of ways to do it. And it becomes very challenging for the other board members to deal with it. Sometimes it's hard to even put your finger on what is it? Why is it every time this person speaks, this is what happens? Sometimes they can put their finger on it and they are willing to confront it, but it didn't help. So it becomes a real issue. So while we're talking about code of ethics, I, I encourage basically every single board I work with, review your code of ethics. Does it really say everything it needs to say? If you like it as a code of ethics, do you perhaps need a companion document that gets very specific? I've seen some boards who really wanted to clean up their act, develop some code of ethics that includes statements like, we, we will, this one's pretty common, we will work very hard to stick to policy discussions and stay out of the weeds. We will ask ourselves every time before we speak, do I need to say this? <laughs> and, and they will, and, but that's tailored, that's customized because they admitted they had a problem there. So those kinds of things help to have some specificity, which most don't. And then the other suggestion I often make, you no, know, I make every time is does your code of ethics include what I call part two? And that is, what do you do when someone's violating it? In other words, what is your recourse as a board? Have you spelled out if someone either has violated or someone alleges that another board member has, what are the steps? And boards need to have that in their policies and they need to write it before they have a problem. So. Those are kind of two pieces that I encourage every board to take a look at when it comes to ethical behavior. That is great advice and so important to take care of it before there's a problem on the table. Uh, another thing that boards do that I think is so can be so proactive and healthy is self-evaluation. Mm. I know you're a huge <clears throat> proponent of that. What is your advice for how boards should approach that activity? Well, if it does, I don't want it to sound too much like a promotional, but first thing I would say is read those portions of our book <laughs> because there, there's an easy resource with it where it's all spelled out in much more detail than I can answer. But the quick version of that is um, if you're thinking of doing it, great, you need to do it. Actually, most of the regional accrediting commissions are requiring it now, but whether they require it or not, you're gonna get a gold star for doing it. So you need to do it. You need to learn about it, learn the options. You need to have a policy that says, and many boards do, we will conduct an annual board self-assessment. And then you can go into deciding what's your process going to look like. What's a tool that we like? What would, what would assess, uh, what set of questions could we use that would measure that? 
Fortunately, you don't have to reinvent the wheel here. There are plenty of models out there. Yes, ACCT has some, but so do other organizations. So you settle on that you're going to do it. You'll have a policy. You settle on a tool. The process includes the timeline. The timeline is important. And I want to put my pitch in right now that I highly recommend your annual board self-assessment occur at the same time that you conduct your annual president's evaluation. Conducting both of those evaluations at the same time makes you think like a team. And if you take the next step, which is after you have done the assessment and you have a report, then, and you're gonna discuss it, that you set up an environment where there's plenty of time to talk about it. My preference, no big surprise, a retreat that focuses on an annual, how we're doing retreat. You talk about the president's evaluation, you talk about the board's self-assessment, they're interlocked, it stops the finger pointing, and then you get to the next step, which is, okay, this is what we did well, here's what we fell a little short, what can we do better next year, what are our goals for next year? So you end that session with the goals for the next year. So that means once you get past year one, and I'm helping a couple of boards with this right now, once you get past year one, by the time you come to year two, you'll use the same questionnaire, or at least the parts of it that you thought worked well, but there will be a second part, and it is how did we do on the goals we set ourselves for this year? And boards need goals for themselves. They're different from the institution, different from the presidents. What are we as a board gonna do? Well, we're gonna be more visible on campus or we're gonna be more active with our legislators or we're finally gonna do the professional development we always said we would do or we're getting a new president. So our focus is gonna be uh, bringing her into the team and doing everything we can to introduce her to the community. Things the board's gonna do, not things the board's gonna hand off to the president. That is a really critical part of a board self-assessment. And by having that cycle, you closed the loop. You assessed, you discussed, you made a plan for next year, the following year you assessed again. And not only does that make sense, but that's specifically what accreditation visiting teams are seeking is the closing the loop. That's great, it's wonderful advice. Uh, I really like the idea of aligning <laughs> the board self-assessment and the CEO self-assessment. I don't know about you, but I've certainly seen boards who assess their CEO in a way they would never want to be assessed themselves. <laughs> and True. so the fact that you are going through that experience yourselves make you a little bit more sensitive. Yeah, that's good. To that's finding good. an assessment for your CEO that is productive and helpful mm -hmm. and, and not um, going to be in any way counterproductive. Right, right. And you share responsibility. So if the board had a goal for themselves that we are going to uh, be more actively engaged with our elected officials and they get to the end of the year and they look at that and say, oops, we didn't do that. Well, why didn't we do that? It keeps them from turning to the president and saying, well, you should have made us do this. So you should have set this up. And the president can say, well, I tried. I set this one and this one and no one was, at it. oh yeah, that's right. Okay, or if the, and the, the reverse is also true, if it's on the president's list and she set them up, but no board members came, whose fault is that? I mean, so it, it really stops, I hate to use that phrase, but it really stops the finger pointing 
we're in it together. We're in it together. What can we do better going forward? And um, I, I've been able to help a number of boards and they've been willing to shift to that model. And it's, nobody's, nobody's ever gone back once they started doing it simultaneously. It's fantastic. You address a lot of common problem areas for boards, and, and we've uh, talked about a few of them already. Are there one or two that stand out to you as most common in your experience, especially, I'd say, during periods of stress, such as we all, and, and community colleges in particular, are experiencing right now? Well, I guess I have kind of two approaches to that question, Jackie. Um, because when I think of problem areas, where my mind goes immediately is how do you prevent them? So I kind of do both at the same time. So I would say the single biggest problem area is the fact if you have board members who don't understand their role, they really don't understand what it is they're supposed to be doing and how they're supposed to do it. They've Either they're new and they haven't learned or they're veterans and they don't, nobody's ever called them on it or they've been called on it. They don't want to do it anyway. And so uh, within that context of knowing their roles and violating good practices is what gets them into trouble. I would think communication protocols are probably the single biggest thing if I can lump them together in one group. By that, I mean, not knowing their role, they are more likely to go and be directing the president what to do. They're more likely to be, we have lots of phrases for it, getting in the weeds, out of their lane, and of course the M word, micromanagement. They are much more apt to do that if they don't understand their role. And doing any of those causes huge problems for the president, for the institution, for, and for the board. That's one kind of communication problem. It's closely related to that is the idea of how they communicate with staff. Are they going directly to staff and asking them to do things? Are they going to senior administrators and telling them they want this or they want that? Again, communication protocols, you don't do that. And yet even the best board members get tempted to do that. And every now and then, get out of their lane. And, so, and that causes problems. Another communication area is what do they do when people come to them with concerns or complaints? How do they respond to that? Do they wanna jump in and fix it? Do they wanna go investigate? Do they promise them they'll fix it for them and they'll get back to them? Wrong, wrong, wrong. And so again, not knowing the communication appropriate protocols will get them into trouble. And, and those kind of have, have a lot in common with each other. And of course, I hope it's implied in our words here and perhaps it's happening in some of the other discussions you're having about how you really should handle all those. I'm not trying to answer that. I'm just saying those get, get people into trouble. And then of course, there's always the communication issues of people start calling each other, emailing each other, again, wrong and wrong. And so it gets them into trouble. So I would have to say that's probably the single biggest area. The other is the more nefarious ones. And that's the ones that we kind of talked about earlier about the subtle or not so subtle ethical violations. I have an agenda 
and I'm going to do all the kinds of things I should. I want to get myself elected. Uh, you know, you go right on down the line, whatever it is I'm trying to do. And then the third category, and I hate to say it, but it's just it's it's uh, the lack of good interpersonal skills, the lack of being able to listen to your colleagues, respect your colleagues problem solve, deal with conflict. I tell people all the time, there's nothing wrong with conflict. Boards should have active, hearty discussions and disagreements. It's how you conduct yourself. And for better or worse, we bring ourselves to a board meeting. And if ourself is not very good at those things, if anything, it gets exacerbated in a board setting and pretty soon things have gotten even worse. COVID exacerbates all of that. COVID keeps us from going and solving it offline, one-on-one. -on -one. And COVID's making, I have a new phrase I'm using and it's COVID cranky. People <laughs> are cranky. You know, you're not just tired of being stuck and tired of the trip that got canceled. Um, and that's assuming, you know, your income is safe and you don't have all the problems that so many hundreds of thousands of people have. Even if you don't have those problems, people are cranky and they're shorter with each other and they jump at each other. And then again, if their communication skills aren't superb to begin with, they say things they shouldn't. Back to professional development. I, I helped a board just a few days ago say to two people who were cranky with each other, but and had real serious issues, it wasn't subtle, but said things that didn't come out the way I think they meant them to. And so going back to the basics and saying, is there another way you could say that? What about if you'd use this word instead of that word? Would that still have worked for you? But then maybe he wouldn't have responded the way he did. And so we're back to, we've got we've got to invest in our governing boards. They make huge decisions that affect tens of thousands of lives, hundreds of millions of dollars. Why shouldn't we be trying to help our boards be as sophisticated and as effective as possible as they carry out their roles? And then that should help them with all the kinds of issues that you've raised today. A fantastic summary. I, uh, I think it's a great place to uh, to wrap things up for today. Uh, you've given so much good advice. There's even more good advice in the chapters that you have written. Um, and uh, uh, I know that our listeners um, appreciate it and will appreciate even more when they pick up the book and take a thorough look at, uh, at all the advice that that is there from you and, and the other authors. So I just wanna thank you for making time today. It's been such a fun conversation and I've just enjoyed spending this time with you. Well, thank you, it's my pleasure. And I would just like to say again, I'm very grateful to all those thousands of governing board members out there who are helping us accomplish our very critical mission. To purchase Trusteeship in Community Colleges, A Guide for Effective Governance, 2nd Edition, visit the ACCT bookstore online. I'll include a link in the description. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>